This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Turn to the New Testament to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And uh, just reading the first uh, few verses only. Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And And because he saw it pleased the Jews... He proceeded further to seize Peter also. That was about during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Over this past uh, couple of Sundays, we have been examining... Uh, the lives of the master's men, the 12 apostles. And we wanted to see what we could learn from their lives and ministries and uh, what inspiration we could get, what challenge there would be, what lessons could be learned. And so far we have looked into the life of Peter and Andrew. And this morning our subject is going to be James, the brother of John. But before we even do that, you need to be aware, it's worth mentioning, that there are at least four men called James in the New Testament. And so if I can briefly just uh, tell you who they are, so that if you're reading through the Gospels and Acts and you see these names, uh, you'll not get mixed up uh, in your devotions. Uh, First of all, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus, Uh, This James was also one of the 12 apostles. And in Mark 15, 40, he's called James the Less. Some translation says James the Little. And uh, it may be that because of either he was younger than James, the brother of John, or he was smaller in stature. We're not quite sure. But that's how he was uh, spoken of as James the Less. And then, of course, there is James, the Lord's brother. Now, Christ, the Bible says that Christ had four brothers and some sisters. Uh, You'll find that in Matthew 13. And uh, their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And uh, so it was quite a big family. Now, the Roman Catholic Church say these were probably cousins because they purport about the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is not scriptural or true. And so they, they cannot say then these were brothers and sisters of Christ. Technically, of course, they had the same mother, but not the same father, because uh, Christ, of course, himself was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so they're technically speaking, they're actually half-brothers and sisters, could we say. But to all intents and purposes, we think of them as brothers and sisters. Now, this particular James, the Lord's brother, uh, he was, uh, how could we put this? He was the apostolic convener 
uh, of the church headquarters in Jerusalem. If there's any big disputes going on in the church, either over doctrine or lifestyle, it would inevitably come back to uh, uh, something, a meeting that would be chaired by James in Jerusalem where all the apostles would meet together to discuss this, and he would chair it. And so he was very influential uh, when it came to those meetings. And you'll see that in Acts chapter 15. He would be the one that would be uh, referred to. He would be the one that would uh, help to set the tone uh, for those meetings. He's also the author of the book of James. And the book of James has often been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's a very practical book. Uh, James was very practical. Uh, I mean, he just, he was a, a can-do person. It had to be done. And uh, he was very practical in all of his uh, approaches regarding church life. And so his little book reflects that. Now, you understand that James, the Lord's uh, brother, that he wasn't a Christian he never became a believer until after the resurrection. All those years growing up with the Lord Jesus, uh, he never acknowledged once that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God. Only the resurrection changed his mind. And boy, when his mind was changed, it really was changed. And he became a dedicated, devoted follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you read the little book of James, you'll see he calls himself a bondservant, a slave of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, but he never was one of the 12 apostles because he didn't get saved till after the resurrection. And then James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, uh, this James had a son, Judas, who also was one of the 12 apostles. And actually, there was two James and two Judases within the 12 apostles. So they were very common names. There's nothing unusual in that. They were just quite everyday names. This James, the apostle of Christ, the one who's the brother of John, that's the one that we want to focus on this morning. His father was called Zebedee and his mother Salome. And Zebedee seems to be a man of means. In Mark 1, uh, it describes that he had servants and he seemed to be the, the patriarch of that fishing family. And so he was well-to-do. And it would appear also that he had connections even as far as the high priest in Jerusalem. So it would seem he was a man of influence as well as a man that was prosperous. Uh, and in fact, uh, maybe I should just show you that in John chapter 18. Most commentators believe this. In John chapter 18... Uh, this is regarding the trial of Jesus. Verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. John usually did not ever refer to himself as, as John, the disciple. In fact, mostly he referred himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved or called himself another disciple. So that's why most believe that this is himself he's talking about here. And he doesn't use his name. 
But notice what it says. Simon Peter followed, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple, if this was John, now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, and we remember he was the one who denied Jesus. And so that seemed to be uh, the family background. We'll talk more about Salome a little bit later. She became a very dedicated follower of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, James was the older brother of John, and there was certainly sibling rivalry between them, as there was between rivalry between all of the disciples, uh, because all of them wanted to know who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and Christ would come into his kingdom, which they fully expected that to happen, and wanted to know, well, who's going to be the greatest? Who, who's, who's going to be favored by him out of all of us? So that debate rippled throughout their conversations quite a bit uh, throughout the New Testament. And uh, John the Younger actually became more prominent than James the Elder. And that's not unusual in Scripture either, uh, where sometimes it's not the firstborn who takes the precedent over the rest of the family. But we don't really want to go into that this morning. But that's just the case here. Uh, even though James was older, yet John became much more prominent uh, in many ways. So, the Gospels only record James in connection with his brother John. Uh, the only time it's different is that where we read in Acts chapter 12 uh, regarding his martyrdom. And even there, he's called James, the brother of John. And so, to some degree, it seems to be he kind of lived in the shadow of John, his younger brother. Uh, just the way it seemed to be that, uh, that Andrew lived under the shadow of Peter. But that's okay. Neither of them seemed to object to that uh, situation. James, of course, was in Christ's inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And he was with the master in those intimate moments that was shared, uh, for instance, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what a moment that must have been for the three of them out of the 12 uh, to be selected to go up the mount and to see Moses and Elijah uh, speaking with Jesus about his decease that was to come. And so that must have been a very precious and important time uh, in the life uh, of James. And also at the home of uh, Jairus. You remember his little daughter had died and by the time Jesus got there, uh, she had died and was in that room. And Jesus put everybody out except Peter, James, and John, and he took them in. And that's where he raised uh, Jairus' little daughter from the dead. Now, you have to understand that that was a huge thing for them to see because it was at least 800 years since the last person had been raised from the dead during the times of Elijah and Elisha. And so this was a major, major thing for them to see firsthand. Can you imagine how excited they must have been at that situation? And of course, the greatest privilege of all was whenever they were with Christ in Gethsemane and how that Jesus went a little further and asked them to stay and watch with him. And even though they fell asleep and he was very generous with them even during that period. But so uh, James uh, was involved, Peter, James, uh, and John. Now, Scripture doesn't reveal a whole lot about James. However, what it does reveal would indicate that he was a very zealous man, a very passionate man about everything he did. 
remember James and John, even though John seemed to be a quieter personality, but they had their moments. And one of those moments was when they wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. And Jesus called them Boanerges, sons of thunder. And so it would appear that James was a very zealous, passionate man in his mannerisms and the way he spoke and everything he did. And, uh, and passion and zeal is, is a wonderful thing if it's harnessed. And remember, Jesus is working with raw recruits. I said last week, all these were young men. You know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, all, you know, maybe late teens, early 20s. And so they were full of ambition and full of passion and full of zeal. And James seemed to be of that ilk, especially. And uh, so there was, there was a lot of passion that had to be harnessed and directed and that was part of Jesus' ministry with those disciples to do that. You know, somebody said it's better a wild horse than a dead horse. I mean, you can do something with a wild horse, but you can't do anything with a dead horse. But better a broken horse than a trained horse. Better that that passion is funneled and directed in a godly way. So I want us to look this morning just a little bit here at this passion and zeal that James had. You remember how that the, in Luke chapter 9, we'll look at in a moment, how that uh, Jesus was in Galilee. He was wanting to go to Jerusalem. And so to go from Galilee to Jerusalem, in between is Samaria. And Jesus went through Samaria. Now, no self-respecting Jew in those days would have ever contemplated going through Samaria. They would have went a hundred miles out of their way than go through Samaria because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They hated them with a passion and the feeling actually was quite mutual. But Jesus took the most direct route. He was in a hurry to get where he needed to be in Jerusalem and so he decided. And I, I, can, imagine, I can imagine the disciples whispering among themselves, did he say we're going to go through Samaria? Surely not. I mean, we're Jews. We would never want to go through Samaria. But of course, they were followers of Christ. Wherever he went, they had to follow. And so that's what they would do. Well, why was there this animosity? Well, to the Jews, and I'm sorry I have to use this term, but this is the way they would think. To the Jews, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were a mixed race. Because the Assyrians, the Assyrians had come in and they had overtaken the, 12, the 10 tribes, which is called Israel. The two tribes in the south this time of the divided kingdom, the two tribes in the south were called Judah, Judah and Benjamin. But the Assyrians came in, they overtook the 10 tribes, they took the best and the cream of the Jewish young men, took them into captivity. And, and these superpowers would do this in those days. And then they would replace them with captives from other nations that they had conquered. And they would bring them in. And when they did that, then after a period of time, the idea was that they, they would assimilate and they would intermarry and that would, uh, that would weaken that particular race. It would be a mixed race. So that was the objective. In doing that, then, uh, there would be a problem with the religion because the Jews, uh, they were 
believed in one God. They didn't have many gods. They had one God, Jehovah God. They had their way of worship that was directed by God. But when this intermarriage went on, this intermingling of the races, then there was a resistance at the start because these Jews coming in, they're coming in with their, their gods. And so they, they sent to the king of Assyria and said, this is not going down well at all here. So send back one of those Jewish priests. Send one of those back to us and, and teach us about this Jehovah, about their God, and we'll worship their God too, as well as our gods. So you can see that the Jews in the south, who were much more generally favorable to just worshiping the one God, Jehovah God, they were very displeased. And that hatred and animosity began, festered there, and right on through to Jesus' day. And so that's what was happening there. Now, historians tell us that they accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the you know, the books of Moses. But then they went on to have their own form of priesthood, their own form of sacrifices, and even their own place headquarters of worship, Mount Gerizim. You remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that Jesus met? And she says, you Jews say that you should worship at Jerusalem, but we say we should worship at Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says, the day's coming, but neither here nor there, but you shall worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not the place we worship. It's from your heart. It's how you worship. And so all of that then was going on. And of course, <laughs> whenever, whenever Jesus was coming through that area, then the Samaritans did not want to offer him hospitality. When they saw his face was set, Susan Luke 9, when they saw his face was set for Jerusalem, they, they did not want to give him hospitality. They didn't want to put him up for the night. They didn't want to give him any food because hospitality is a great thing in the East. You never refuse hospitality, no matter who it is, comes through. But they did with him. So James and John, who had went a little bit ahead, saw this. They were angered. I mean, they were raging. The idea of them doing this to their Lord and Master. That's why they said, let's call fire down from heaven and burn them up. That's passion for you, isn't it? But it's misdirected passion. It's not a good passion. It's good to have passion, and it's good to have zeal, but this was misdirected. This was not what Christ wanted. Christ loved the Samaritans. He just wanted to bless them and help them, even though they had refused him. And so they just went a different way. Jesus loved the Samaritans. In fact, he angered the scribes and Pharisees when he told stories about the Samaritans. And that woman at the well, by the way, whenever Jesus asked for a drink of water, she was shocked. Remember what she said? You, being a Jew, asking me for a drink of water? I mean, that's unheard of. No Jew would ever have done that. So she was shocked. Well, she was in for a bigger shock later on when he told her her life story. And she was so shocked and so surprised and so blessed that she became a believer and became an evangelist, got the whole village to come out to get saved. And so Jesus would tell these stories. You remember the, the story of the good Samaritan that he told the Jews? Can you imagine what they thought about that? Here was a priest, here was a Levite, and they passed the, the beaten man on the road and did nothing. They passed on the other side. But here's this Samaritan of all people, and he stops and he helps this poor man. 
Can you imagine when Jesus was telling these stories, the hackles would be rising in the back of their neck? These are the hated Samaritans. But Jesus loved those Samaritans. Ten lepers came to Jesus. And Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. That was, if you felt you were healed of leprosy, you went and showed yourself to the priest, and he declared whether you were cleansed or not. So Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed, they were cleansed, they were healed of leprosy as they went. But who came back out of the ten? Just one, Jesus said, and he was a Samaritan. Of all the people, the Samaritan came back. And so Jesus was breaking down those barriers that they had built up after many, many years. And that culture was there and that tradition was there. And Jesus was breaking that down. And so obviously there was many cultural and racial differences and religious differences at play here. But the honor of Christ, that's what James and John was thinking about, the honor of Christ. These Samaritans had dishonored the Lord Jesus and they weren't having it they were going to teach them a lesson they would never forget they were going to burn them up can you imagine that now let me give you a little bit of background to this you see when they says let us call fire down from heaven like Elijah and burn up these Samaritans the first thing comes into your mind when you think of Elijah calling far down from heaven is Mount Carmel, isn't it? Remember how he put the sacrifice out? He said, let the God who... who, are, who let the God who... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Let the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And of course, those prophets of Baal, they danced around, they did everything, but they couldn't get far to come down from heaven. But Elijah got fired down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. Now, whenever you think of Elijah bringing fire down from it, that is what you think. But that's not what they were thinking. They knew their Old Testament. And that's not what was in their mind. I'll show you exactly what was in their mind when they said, let's call fire down from heaven and burn these Samaritans up. Turn with me to uh, Second Book of Kings, chapter 1. Second book of Kings, chapter 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron. Beelzebub was the lord of the flies. And Akron wasn't even in the country. So here's a king of Israel, and he's going to inquire of a pagan idolatrous god. Go and call Beelzebub, the god of Akron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron? Now therefore thus saith the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so Elijah departed. So Elijah cut them off at the pass, delivered this stern message to the king, and the messengers returned to him, and he said to them, why have you come back? You know, uh, how, how come you're coming back so soon? 
because this was a long journey that had been going on. So they said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus saith the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Akron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> he was well known, this man. He knew immediately who that was. And the king sent to him a captain with 50, a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him, and there he was, sitting on top of the hill. And he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. <laughs> so Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Ah, you get in the picture now. This is what they were thinking about. Not Elijah and Mount Carmel. They were thinking about this. And then, unbelievably, then he sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. I mean, this man's bunkers, isn't he? I mean, this is such a silly king. But then he's worshiping false gods. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus has the king said, Come down quickly. <laughs> a bit of arrogance here, isn't there? So Elijah answered and said to him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. <laughs> and then incredibly... Again, he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. How would you like to have been the third captain? <laughs> How would you like to have been dealt that hand? I mean, that's a death warrant, isn't it? But this man's no dozer, as we say. He's no mug, this man. And the third captain of 50 went up, and he came and he fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours, <laughs> not of the kings or of mine, of yours, be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s and their 50s. Now let my life be precious in your sight. So he humbled himself. He was a smart man. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And he said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah has spoken. Huh. And so that's what they're thinking. Just like that king had disrespected the God of Israel, these Samaritans had disrespected their king and master Jesus, and they weren't having it. And they thought, well, if Elijah can do that, we can do that too. And Jesus had to rebuke them and said, fellas, you haven't got it. You have no idea what I'm about. I come to save men's lives. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I come to love and show grace and mercy. You do not know what spirit you're of. Well, they thought they were of the spirit of Elijah. They thought that's good enough. 
You know, Jesus could have said, but fellas, listen, that was Elijah. That was then. You know, that was that dispensation. But this is the age of grace and mercy. Yes, one day I will come back as a judge for sure. You can see that in Revelation. But right now, I'm come with the grace and mercy. And I love these Samaritans. So you do not know what spirit uh, you're of. But I think perhaps it's worth mentioning a couple of things we commend them for in this incident. They had faith. James and John had faith. They didn't doubt for one second that they could call fire down from heaven. Now that requires faith, doesn't it? Didn't doubt it for one second. Couldn't wait to do it. <laughs> but it was wrong to do it. They asked Jesus' permission first, and a good job they did. You know, Jesus, if he had wanted to do that, he didn't need their help. He could have done that if he wanted to. But he didn't want to, of course. But Jesus was never into doing miracles for himself. Do you remember in the, the temptations? Turn these stones into bread after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was hungry. The devil says, turn these stones into bread. Imagine, imagine turning inanimate objects like stone into bread that you can eat. I Satan knew Jesus could do that, but Jesus wasn't about to do that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Took him up into a high temple, temp, uh, pinnacle, and said, throw yourself down. Doesn't the Bible say that the angels will come in and swoop in and catch you lest you dash your foot against a stone? I mean, that would be spectacular. That would convince a lot of people. But Jesus wasn't into the spectacular for himself. He says, no, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so we commend them for their faith. We commend them because they asked Christ first. And we commend them, I suppose, because they wanted to defend Christ's honor. And you've got to take your hat off to them for that because there's so many believers today do not defend Christ's honor. They want to be chameleon Christians just disappearing into the background noise and not standing up for the master. A lot of stuff goes on, and sometimes you have to take your stand, nail your colors to the mast, declare who you are. And they did that. But Jesus loved the Samaritans, wanted to reach them. Acts 1 and 8, ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Samaria, do not forget Samaria. The last place they wanted to go was Samaria. But Jesus says, no, that's part of the deal. That's who I want you to reach. And they did go to Samaria. And they did reach them. 
in Acts chapter 8. You can have just a, a little quick... Do you remember in Acts chapter 8 how Philip went to Samaria and he had a revival in Samaria and people were getting healed, lame were walking, devils were cast out, multitudes were coming to Christ in Samaria. It was a wonderful thing. Right in that very place where the disciples at one point wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn them up. But Philip the evangelist had a heart to reach them and God sent him and he reached them. And tremendous things were happening. And so Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and it was actually happening. Now most of the apostles were staying at Jerusalem. But when they heard what was happening in Samaria, Peter and John came to suss it out, to see. They heard what's happening. We must see this. And whenever they came, if you read on, it says, and they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Think about that. James and John at one point wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn them up. But now here's the fire of the Holy Spirit falling upon them. And they're receiving the Holy Spirit. What a turnaround. What a change. What work Christ had to do in their lives to get them to that point. And it took a lot of work to get them to the place where they finally saw what Christ had come to do. Not just to reach the Jews. Not just to stay in Jerusalem. But to go to the uttermost parts of the ends of the earth. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came with him with her sons, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your kingdom. <laughs> that's a bit bold, isn't it? But she's proud of her boys. Mothers love their boys. And she wanted them to be sitting in the most prominent place when Christ came into his kingdom. I mean, they had been good fishermen. They had been great disciples. And now they're well known because they're followers of Christ. Everybody knows, hey, there's James, there's John. And so she thought, well... Christ is going to start his kingdom soon. And I want my two boys to be right there at his right hand and left hand. <laughs> and Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they says, We are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, 
but as for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Why do you think they're greatly displeased? Because that's what they wanted. Only James and John got in there first. <laughs> they wanted every bit as badly as they want, the other two wanted it. Because that's what they talked about all the time. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Salome, the mother, was a dedicated follower of Christ. And leaving that part aside where she got ambitious for her two sons and what mother's not ambitious for their children to do well but leaving that aside she went on to be a, a dedicated devoted follower of Christ and she was one of the ones the Bible says who ministered unto him of their substance there was a few women who did that they followed the evangelistic band and they helped them and gave money and made contributions and she was one who did that but after Jesus had died, and when he was buried, they, she was one of the ones who went to anoint his body. She was one of the ones. So she served Christ before he died. She served Christ after he died. And so she was dedicated right to the very end, probably to the end of her whole life, in fact. And so that was the mother. What a great family they had. You know, when you think of the dad, you think of Zebedee, whose two sons were just, just left the family business and just walked off to be with Jesus. And he never complained. He never said this is wrong. He knew it was right. And no doubt God greatly honored him for that. So let us begin to wind this up now. We saw there that in Acts 12, he was martyred. And this... Herod Agrippa the first was the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered all those little boys two years and under at Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus? Herod the Great, you know, was a great builder. He, he built the temple, rebuilt the temple, built other things. Uh, but he was a cruel, vindictive man. One said that he was masterful but merciless. He slaughtered several of his own sons. So he had no qualms about killing anybody. And here is his grandson, Agrippa I. Now the Herod who killed John the Baptist was Herod Antipas. And he was as murderous as all of the Herods. I mean, the whole line of them were evil and wicked. These were puppet kings of Rome over all this region, Judea. And Herod Agrippa was Herod Antipas' nephew and successor, this one who killed James with the sword. 
Why did he do that? Well, think about this for a moment. In Acts 12, the church has exploded. From the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 got saved in one day, then it just, and then there was 4,000 after, and it just took off. All of Jerusalem was filled with their doctrine. The whole country was just flooded with the gospel. And the Jews hated that because they felt threatened by that. And Herod, who was the puppet king of Rome, that's his jurisdiction, and he's now concerned because the Jews and the Christians, suddenly there's tension going on here, and if a big row begins, and a big fight starts, and that goes back to Rome, then he's in trouble because he's supposed to keep the peace for Rome. You know, Rome's attitude was, if you don't bother us, we'll not bother you. That was their attitude. And they didn't want any trouble. Remember Pilate? whenever they brought Jesus to Pilate. And Jesus, Pilate didn't want anything to do with that. He says, this, this is a religious thing. He says, you sort it out. He says, I don't want anything to do with that. But, they says, but this man wants to make himself a king. And whenever they said that, then Pilate had to set up and take notice because that's his territory. And if it goes back to Rome, that somebody there wanting to be a king and he doesn't deal with it, then he's in big trouble with Rome. Actually, Pilate was in a lot of trouble in Rome anyway. So there's a whole political intrigue going on here with Herod. And so what does he do? He gets James and he kills him with a sword. And he's probably thinking, you know, if I do this here, let's see how it goes. Let's see what the reaction is. Well, the church really didn't do anything, but it pleased the Jews. And that's why he proceeded to take Peter also. So Peter's arrested. And hoping after the, after the feast that he would be slain as well. And then probably thinking, well, just work through the ranks. And then this troublesome sack will be gone forever. And everything will be at peace again with the Jews. I can handle them. But of course, even though James was slain with the sword, Peter was spared the sword. And that was in the providence of God. Who can understand that? Why one should die and one should live. But that was in the providence of God. And so James became the first martyr among the apostles. Stephen was the first martyr among the Christian disciples. John the Baptist, of course, became a martyr. But James was the first apostle to be martyred. And isn't it interesting that his younger brother, John, became the last apostle to die? He died in his 90s. Again, the providence of God. Who can understand only the mind of God and the wisdom of God for these things to happen? Tradition, Eusebius, that fourth century historian, says that the man who led James to the place of judgment and execution was so impressed by James's testimony and his demeanor and how he handled that that he himself became a believer. And tradition says that James, when he apologized to James because he was leading him to his execution, when he apologized to James for that, tradition says that James says, peace be unto you, brother. Can you believe this is the same man who wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans? What a work of the Holy Spirit has changed this man to the point where he's not wanting to kill people but he's willing to be led away to die a martyr's death 
for Jesus. And tradition says that both James and that one who led him, both of them went to their death that day as martyrs for Christ. Whenever Judas went out and hung himself, remember lots were cast to make up the 12, and Matthias was the one who was chosen by Lot to make up the 12. But when James was martyred, no one else was put in his place because the 12 had already been made up. And even though there would be other apostles come later, like the apostle Paul, who was the greatest of all of the apostles, in fact, in his own testimony, I labored more than they all. Yet he wasn't one of that 12, that original special 12. Paul's name's not going to be in the foundations of the New Jerusalem, but theirs will be. And that's God's order. That's the way God wanted that to be. Tradition also says, as we close, that James traveled to the to Mediterranean as far as Spain, where it's reported they spent a considerable time evangelizing in Spain, raising up churches, and perhaps the why that's why James is the patron saint of Spain to this day. His symbol is three scallop shells representing his pilgrimages by sea in that region. And so James, the first apostolic martyr, was a wonderful man of God, fearless, brave, courageous, went out and did whatever he needed to do for Christ's kingdom. Hardly anything is said of him other than what I have so told you. But that doesn't matter. That matters nothing. God knows everything. And God is the whole record. But tradition says he did a wonderful work for the kingdom of God. And he opened up new areas for Christ and for the gospel. So let me encourage you this morning. When you read these stories, you'll see that they were just ordinary folks. Just like you and me. Just ordinary. Nothing special about any of them. Full of mistakes, blunders, mess-ups, did all of that, but Christ and his mercy and in his patience and his perseverance with them, he got them to the place where every one of them became great men of God and set the foundation for the gospel that's lasted to this very day for you and me. And so be encouraged. You may look at yourself and think, well, I'm not much. Well, they weren't much either. But to whatever degree God wants to use us, if we're available, then God will use us. Yes, we have rough edges. Yes, there's things we need knocked off. Yes, there's some stuff he needs to sort out in our lives. Fine, as long as we lay our lives in the altar, he'll do that. And then he'll use us for his glory. Amen? Amen. And then only eternally will reveal what has been done for him through our lives. Because this is our generation. This is our time. We're not going to live in any other generation. This is it right now. So let's live for Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk